Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of TGI Crime Day. I'm not going to bore you with a big long intro because this case has a lot of info to unpack and I want to just dive in as quickly as possible. So short, sweet, to the point, make sure you rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things, send me your hometown murder stories, urban legends, uh, ghost stories, the time you almost got kidnapped. I want to hear all of them. Uh, send those over to me at tgicrimeday at gmail.com. And like I said, we're going to get started because we're going to be here for a while. In today's episode, we are going to go down the rabbit hole that is the disappearance of Susan Powell. This case has all of these heartbreaking, infuriating, insane roads that led up to and followed her disappearance in 2009. There have been many, many different TV specials and podcasts about this case, and I relied a lot on the Cold podcast that came out a couple of years ago. Cold is hosted by Dave Crowley and is so extremely well done. So if you want to take an even deeper dive into this story, I highly recommend you check out that podcast. This is one of those cases that has so many bizarre twists and turns that all of the details kind of come together and make it seem like a weird TV drama, but it's all true and it's just odd. So there are twists and turns and many weird characters that come into play in this story. And I tried my best to condense this case into one episode, but there are so many details and weird side stories that are like pertinent to the case and pertinent to the information and important in everything that led up to and everything that followed Susan's disappearance that I didn't want to cut anything out. So my point is, I'm going to cut this up into two different episodes. And if you were looking for a really quick Wikipedia style recitation of this case, this might not be the episode for you. But if you're like me and you like the long version with all the details, uh, then get comfy and let's get started. On the evening of Friday, June 27th, 2008, Susan Powell paced back and forth in her living room. She was shaken up over a fight that she'd had that night with her husband, Josh. Things had been escalating for quite some time, and she felt that it was finally time to start keeping track of all the different events happening in her home. Susan asked her friend, Kiersey Hallowell, to come over and write down the details of the fight that she'd just had with Josh. Susan asked for Kiersey's help because Kiersey knew how to quickly take notes using a form of shorthand that she learned in school, so Susan knew that she would be able to get out all of the details without having to write it down herself. As Susan paced back and forth, she went over every detail of what she described as the worst fight they'd ever have. Josh and Susan mainly fought about two things, uh, religion and money. This particular fight broke into a full-on screaming match, and Susan eventually locked herself in a closet and threatened to call the police. After this incident, Susan took the notes to work with her the next day, and she wrote up a makeshift last will and testament. In that note, she wrote, quote, For mine and my children's safety... I feel the need to have a paper trail at work, which would not be accessible to my husband, end quote. She went on to write the details of her fight, the marital problems, and the threatening comments Josh had made when the talk of a possible divorce came up, and in this note, she also said, quote, If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys, end quote. Then she used a second piece of paper to make a quick envelope, wrapped her note in it, and then wrote on the outside, For friends and family of Susan Powell, all except for Josh Powell, husband, I don't trust him. A year and a half later, Susan would go missing. But as I'm sure we all know, relationships don't usually start off volatile and angry. Susan and Josh were once a happy couple who were very much in love. So let's rewind and take a look at how we got here. To make sense of some of the decisions and the behaviors of Josh Powell, I feel like it's important to go all the way back to his childhood so that we can kind of examine the household that he grew up in. Because when you learn about his history, everything that happens later in this case all falls into place and makes perfect sense, unfortunately. So let's go all the way back to 1976 when Josh Powell was born to Stephen and Terry Powell. There were five kids in the Powell family and each of the Powell siblings play a really interesting part in our story today, but we'll get into that later. Steve and Terry were raising their family in Spokane, Washington and were members of the LDS or Mormon faith. However, religion would soon become a point of contention in their marriage. By the time Josh was eight years old, the age that children are baptized in the LDS church, Steve had left the church and was openly against religion. This started to cause major issues between Steve and Terry, and Steve was constantly working against against Terry, undermining her rules and telling his sons that the church was bad and Mormons were evil. When Terry was eight months pregnant with their youngest daughter, she found a journal, and again, 
journals are going to come into play in this story a lot if you're not familiar. Um, so Stephen had been keeping this journal. And in the journal, Steve had been writing about a woman that went to their church. He greatly detailed his obsession with her, his fantasies about her, even going as far as writing that if something happened to her husband, Steve would marry this woman as a second wife, which is not something that's practiced in modern Mormonism today. Um, Terry, who again is about to give birth to their fifth child, was of course shocked by this. She confronted Steve and he openly admitted to his feelings. Later, Terry said that when Steve was talking about this fantasy of taking this woman as his second wife, she genuinely worried he would do something to her husband to make this come true. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason, Terry decided to stay in this marriage. And as the years went on, things became worse and worse at the Powell house. She tried to take her kids to church and teach them what she felt was right, but Steve was there to undermine her at every turn. He made fun of his kids for going to church. He teased Josh about participating in Boy Scouts, and he was constantly telling his kids that the Book of Mormon was a lie and that their mom was a religious fanatic. Which, just let me start off by saying you're allowed to have your own views on religious opinions, etc., but it's really disrespectful to be mean to someone else's religious views. I'm not going to get into that. Let's just move on. So when Josh and his brothers were heading into their teenage years, Steve told them that humans were just animals, that they should be able to have sex with whoever whenever they wanted. And if you're unfamiliar with the belief in the LDS church, they believe that sex should only be with one person after marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, the choice to have sex is up to the individual, but Steve was overall inappropriate, to say the least, about his sexual desires, as you'll see more in, like later in this story. But to give you an idea, Steve kept meticulous journals about his sexual fantasies, and unfortunately, in some of these journals, he turned this sexual attention on his oldest daughter, Jennifer. We'll talk more on this uh, later when it comes up. Let's get back to what Josh was doing at this time. During his childhood, Josh was very, very smart. He would teach himself things as long as he was interested in them. However, he struggled in a classroom setting, which I feel like a lot of us had that problem when we were kids. Um, he would get bored very easily, so he didn't excel in school because he just didn't want to. Uh, when he was young, he loved participating in Boy Scouts, which was a really positive place for him to be away from his family and away from his dad's weird opinions about sex and religion and women. Um, but as I mentioned before, Steve made fun of Josh for going to Boy Scouts until eventually he just stopped going. Things would get darker for Josh in his teen years, and allegedly when he was 13 years old, he killed a gerbil that his younger sister Elena had. And at this time, she was only four years old, and Josh made her touch the dead gerbil's blood and, the, like, kept the body around. Uh, around the same time, there was a story that was told that Terry apparently caught Josh and his brother examining Elena. Um, I read that in one article, but there was a special, I think, that talked about the family being on vacation and Josh and his brother were examining a little girl that they saw at this swimming pool. I've heard both stories, but the one that seems to be the most accepted version of this event was that it was their sister Elena, which is troubling to say the least. Um, around this time, Josh also had an incident with Terry where she had asked him to do the dishes. He got extremely heated and very angry with her and pointed a butcher knife at her and said, don't push it, mom. And after this, Terry said that she was kind of afraid of him, which I don't blame her. Um, when Josh was 14, he attempted to hang himself and Josh was obviously experiencing a lot of distress at this time. There was a lot of fighting going on in the Powell house, especially between Steve and Terry. And I'm sure that this was taking a major toll on all of the Powell kids. Um, eventually Terry left for a while, but she came back because of her religious beliefs about LDS temple marriages. Terry insisted that they make it work because in the LDS religion, temple marriages are believed to be very sacred and divorce is basically not an option. Uh, it's frowned upon to say the least. However, unsolicited marriage advice corner. In my opinion, you don't owe it to anyone to stay in a toxic, abusive relationship, no matter what your faith is. Also, a partner who no longer respects the vows you made together is no longer holding up their half of the deal, which kind of makes the vows disappear, yeah? Uh, I just feel that staying in relationships where all you do is scream at each other isn't healthy for anyone, especially these kids growing up in this household, because as you'll see later in this case, hatred and anger only teach more hatred and anger. And unfortunately, spoiler alert, you're going to be seeing a lot more of this toxic behavior as our story continues. I'm going to do my best to keep my personal opinions to myself in this case, but I just, oh, it's frustrating. Okay, moving on. As Josh got older and started high school, he had 
a pretty hard time interacting with girls, which is nothing unusual for awkward teenage boys. That's fine. But the problem is that Josh didn't know how to handle this situation very well. He would latch onto certain girls and refuse to take no for an answer. There was a girl that he set his sights on in high school who was a grade older than him, whose name was Sarah. When he told Sarah that he liked her, she politely told him she wasn't interested in him more than just as a friend. And Josh tried to tell her at first that it was fine, that they could just be friends and continue what they were doing, but then eventually he would just keep making her uncomfortable. And one day he just kissed her out of the blue. And she, of course, shot him down and was like, dude, we already had this conversation. Unfortunately, Josh doesn't understand that. And this is just the first in what's going to be an example of his lack of respect for women and their boundaries. When Josh was 16, Steve was taking Josh to school and thought this would be the best time to let him know that he and Terry were finally going to get a divorce. And Josh was, of course, shocked and angry. And he probably spent that whole school day in a confused fog. And when he got home from school, he walked in to find that his family was there, along with the bishop from their church. This was how Terry had wanted to tell the family about the divorce, which, of course, Josh already knew about at this point. Um, And they told him that Steve would be moving out, Terry would be keeping the house, and then Terry told Josh that he and his brothers could stay in the house, but there would be specific rules that they had to follow, such as no swearing, no crude talk, no R-rated movies, and an 11 p.m. curfew. Um, Terry had even written up a type of contract that listed these rules that said, if you break these rules, mom reserves the right to throw you out. I'm assuming this was something that all the boys had to sign and Josh eventually did sign it, but he was probably sullen and sulky and annoyed like any teenage boy would be. Um, I've heard of people making parental contracts like this before, generally in true crime cases. And I'm really curious, like I didn't experience anything like that when I was a kid. If any of you had these like parental contracts, or if you do this with your kids, I want to hear about it because I just feel like it's so weird. Or is it appropriate? I don't know. I don't have kids. Uh, I really want to know. Go comment on this post over on Instagram and let me know what you guys think of the parental contract thing. Okay, moving on. After Steve moved out, Josh was just furious all the time. He blamed Terry completely for the divorce. Red flag. Uh, And one night, Josh wanted to go to a party, and Terry reminded him of his 11 p.m. curfew. She said that if he missed that curfew, the door would be locked when he got home. Later, when Josh was at the party, he called Terry to just ask if she was serious about the locked door. She told Josh, try it and find out. This small threat from his mom made him go kind of berserk, and he didn't go home for days. Eventually, Steve found him at his friend's house and told Josh that if he wanted to, he could move into his new apartment with him and... Um, their other, his other brother, John. So Josh eventually did take him up on that offer and moved in with his dad. Things between Steve and Terry continued to escalate and get nastier during their divorce. Steve would call Terry an occultist and a religious freak. John and Josh also signed a court document saying that the younger kids, Michael and Elena, needed to be protected from Terry. Josh, John, and their oldest sister, Jennifer, were the only ones who were old enough to really understand what was going on. And Jennifer came forward and said that actually Steve was the one they needed to be protected from and reminded the courts of the disgusting things Steve was writing about his sexual attraction um, to his oldest daughter in his journal. She also, I forgot to write this part down, but from what I remember, she also talked about an incident where Steve took her on like a business trip with him. And while they were getting ready for bed, they like shared a hotel room. Steve apparently had like a dirty movie on while his daughter was trying to sleep in the same room and he would like write in his journal about her wearing shorts and how it made him crazy and just all of these disgusting disturbing inappropriate things that I just feel like a court should have thought was horrendous and done something about but unfortunately that's not what happened um basically Jennifer was the only one that was on Terry's side at this point one day Steve Josh and John showed up at the house with some legal legal papers for Terry to sign and a fight quickly escalated. Steve slapped Terry across the face. Jennifer threatened to call the police if they didn't leave, and Steve yanked the phone out of Jennifer's hand. She grabbed the legal paperwork from him and attempted to run outside of the car when Josh tackled her in the yard. So things were obviously becoming violent and getting very physical. Terry also noticed that there were weird things going missing from her house. Steve was going inside when she wasn't home and snooping around her bedroom for things to use against her in the divorce. And when this came up in court, Steve said that he needed to be allowed inside the house whenever he felt like it to get things or to use his office. 
And the court agreed with this, which seems a little inappropriate to me, but I'm not a lawyer. What do I know? Um, eventually, Terry put a deadbolt on her bedroom door so that Steve couldn't continue going into her room, at least, and violating her privacy. There was a day that she got home from work, and Terry found Steve trying to take some furniture from the house that was hers. And when she tried to stop them or stop him, he grabbed her by the hair and pulled out a chunk of her hair. And this was finally a big enough red flag that he lost custody of the youngest Powell kids, Michael and Elena. But of course, because again, the Powell men don't know how to take no for an answer and can't respect boundaries, Steve continued to show up at their school and would take them for unscheduled visits and refuse to return them. And I read, I want to say that there was a blog that Steve wrote where he talked about how Steve's parents also went through a really horrible divorce. And there were two different occasions where each parent essentially kidnapped their kids. And according to Steve, one day, his mom took him and his siblings to Ohio without telling their dad where they were going. Eventually, she took them all back home. But a few months later, their dad was so mad and wanted to get revenge on their mom that he took Steve and the siblings and took them to Steve's grandmother's house um, and basically said that they were never going to go back. It was a whole thing where they would basically hide the kids from each other, which is always great when you use pawns and when you use children as pawns in your divorce. So because of those experiences, Terry was very worried that Steve was going to do the same things and take the kids and disappear. Steve was also doing his best to turn these kids against Terry. And when Michael and Elena were with Steve, he and the older boys would constantly tell them that it was Terry's fault that they weren't together. It's Terry's fault that they're getting divorced. It's just, it's not good. It's mind games. And it, this really does continue to come up for the rest of these kids' lives. And it's so sad. Josh took his parents' divorce particularly hard, and he struggled through the rest of high school. Um, he was also thrown yet another change when Steve decided that it would be a good idea for them to move four hours away to Puyallup, Washington, which meant that he would have to be a new student his senior year, which would suck for anybody. Josh struggled really bad to make new friends at his school, and again, he stuck himself to another girl named Mary, who was not interested in Josh as more than a friend. Mary Cox had the same story as Sarah. He wouldn't just leave it alone and accept that she didn't want to date him, and he would just randomly show up at her house unannounced and hang out with her family and do things as if they were dating, and finally, Mary had to just be straight with him and say, look, I am not interested in you that way. You need to stop coming over. It's making my family uncomfortable, and I'm sure that he, you know, threw a fit, pouted about it, because that's what he does. Uh, once Josh graduated high school, he decided that he wanted to start his own woodworking business, but when it wasn't an overnight success, he gave up on it which is a pattern that you're going to see a lot from Josh. Eventually, Josh started college and decided to change up his, um, his personal style. His new uniform became a leather jacket, white t-shirt and jeans, and he also got himself a motorcycle. Um, he was very much embracing this James Dean kind of vibe, and it seemed that this was helping him to have more confidence, and things were starting to turn around for him. He was doing really well in school, and he started seeing a girl named Becky who returned his feelings. However, Josh quickly found a fault with Becky. Becky was doing what young college girls do. She would go out dancing and hang out with her friends, and Josh had some very interesting, let's say interesting, opinions about this dancing habit of hers. Um, in his journal, and again, we're going to see these journals a lot in this story, he wrote, quote, I think dancing is an intimate activity to be shared with a loved one. I don't see the point of dancing with strangers. She went to bars with her girlfriends, and one time I, while I knew her, she went by herself since her friends weren't available. I think that this is not a ladylike activity. I've decided to direct my energy into finding a girl who has similar attitudes on love, intimacy, time, education, and such issues. And then Josh moved away to the town in Footloose where dancing was illegal. Just kidding. He did move away, though. He went to a different college and began living in the dorms with some roommates. And unfortunately, Josh also had troubles here. He didn't like living with these roommates, and he felt like they were constantly teasing him about his values, so he asked to change dorms. And don't get me wrong. Um... It's perfectly fine to remove yourself from situations where your values are being compromised and people aren't respecting your boundaries, especially after dealing with a dad like Steve, who was constantly there to make fun of Josh for going to church and scouts, etc. Uh, when Josh started school, he wanted to be an architect, but he quickly gave up on that idea and decided that he wanted to go into acting. So, of course, he got involved in the drama club and auditioned for the school play that was coming up. He was offered a very small, non-speaking role and was, of course, super offended uh, that his acting was not being appreciated the way that he felt it should be. He felt that he was ready for the lead role and that his acting was far better than anyone else's. You know, on his first try. So naturally, and he didn't get his way, so he quit drama club. 
Again, there's this pattern of just throwing in the towel when things aren't going his way. What's that expression? If at first you don't succeed, just quit? Wait, no, that can't be right. Eventually, Josh did find a group of friends that he got along with really well, and he decided to join the Campus Crusaders for Christ, which was a group of born-again Christians at his college. And Josh decided that he was also going to be a born-again Christian and made friends in this group and was feeling really positive again. That is, until he went home for the summer to live with Steve, who was quick to put down his son and tease him for his newly renewed religious beliefs. At this point, Josh finally was starting to get a taste of what Terry went through in their divorce and what his mom had probably been feeling for so long, and she, uh, he decided to move back in with her in Spokane and reconnect with his family for the summer. When Josh moved back in with Terry in 1998, she suggested that he should start going to church activities with his old friends, and he decided that he would start attending a young single adult ward, and he actually ended up meeting a girl whose name was Catherine. Josh was 22 at the time, and Catherine was 19, and they dated on and off for a while. Their main issue was that Josh was constantly pressuring Catherine to move in together, which went against Catherine's religious beliefs. Like we talked about earlier, the LDS church doesn't approve of couples living together or having sex before marriage. But eventually, Josh wore her down and convinced her to move in with him. Catherine's mom tried to convince her what a bad idea this was, but we've all been 19, so you know she told her mom to back off and decided to move in with Josh anyways. In an odd turn of events, they decided to move in with Steve in order to save money to get their own place. I'm assuming this was probably because, just like Catherine's parents, uh, Josh's mom, Terry, probably was like, you can't have your girlfriend live here, so he was like, fine, I'll go live with dad again. Bad idea. Anyway, so Catherine might have been trying to save money so that they could get their own place, but Josh was spending every penny he had and taking Catherine's money as well. He made her sign over her student loan check to him, and then he put it in his own bank account, and then he spent the entire thing on anything but her school. Uh, this was just the first in a series of very control-freak behavior. And for some reason, Josh insisted that they started attending a family ward and lie to people and tell everyone that they were actually married, when in private, he told Catherine he never wanted to get married or have kids, which I'm sure was very confusing and devastating to Catherine. He also stopped her from making new friends in Seattle or talking with her old friends from Spokane. Josh spent a bunch of money to get a really nice computer that Catherine wasn't allowed to use unless he was sitting right next to her seeing what she was doing. Josh also only had his motorcycle, so unless he was taking her somewhere, Catherine couldn't go anywhere. She was essentially trapped at, at Steve's house. And one day, Catherine decided that she was going to do something nice for herself and get her nails done. She got home from the salon and was really excited to show Josh the acrylic nails that she got. She was really proud of them, and Josh made fun of her for spending her money on something that was stupid, according to him, and uh, basically berated her until she decided to go get the nails taken off the next day. There was also an incident where they got into a bad argument and Catherine locked herself in the bathroom to get away from Josh. And Josh just stood outside the door having a tantrum trying to break the door down. I think it's worth mentioning that when people are in these weird controlling relationships, they sometimes don't see the signs. Because generally, the control starts little by little until you're in over your head. And if you've been around this type of relationship, you know exactly how it goes. And if you haven't, you may wonder why she wouldn't just leave at that point. However, the people who get it, get it, and it's not that simple. Josh also stopped Catherine from seeing her family unless he was there. Again, red flag. Even when Catherine's uncle passed away, Josh wouldn't let her attend the funeral because her uncle had been unsupportive of their relationship. I can't imagine why. Eventually... Catherine did go see her family, and Josh stayed behind because of his school schedule, and luckily, having some time away from Josh helped Catherine realize how absurd Josh was, and she ended up staying in Utah with her family. She broke up with Josh over the phone, get it girl, and Josh acted like it wasn't a big deal, uh, but he was pissed, and he, he tried to completely erase Catherine from all of his journals, uh, which I think is a little dramatic, but that's okay. Eventually, Catherine traveled back to Washington to pick up her stuff that she left at Steve's place, and she brought her new boyfriend with her. Yes, girl! After his breakup with Catherine, Josh decided to move into an apartment with some friends from church. At this time, his journal was full of complaint after complaint after complaint about his new roommates. Josh, of course, set his sights on a new girl. He was moving on. He wasn't afraid to go up to this girl and tell her how interested he was in her. Josh was an extremely confident person, which is great, until that confidence turns into being straight-up pushy. This girl was not interested in him, but that didn't stop him from showing up at her house unannounced, even though she made it very clear she wasn't interested. Again, we're seeing these repeating behaviors. That didn't bother Josh at all, and he would just continue to show up. Eventually, he decided that he would set his sights on her younger sister. Again, very weird, insanely pushy. 
and then he just kept showing up out of nowhere to see her instead of her older sister. Josh even would show up to this girl's job with a video camera, and he asked her to be his girlfriend. And this girl, of course, said, no thanks, you just liked my sister last week, and now you won't leave me alone, question mark. But even after she told him that she was not interested, Josh could not get over it. Eventually, he sent her a love letter that said, quote, I love you. I want you to love me. I tried to get over you, but no other girl comes close. The only thing I don't love about you is that I can't reach you. As if that's her fault. Uh, in my notes after writing down that quote, it just says, bro. I think that pretty much sums up my feelings on this odd behavior. In January of 2000, Josh decided that he was going to get his own apartment and stop living with roommates. He also decided to change majors again, and he started business school. Around this time, Josh also started to attend church again, hoping that he would find a new relationship and maybe some new friends. His journals from this time described more girl troubles. The girls he liked didn't like him, and the girls who were interested in him weren't good enough. That is, until he met Susan Cox. Susan Cox was 19 years old and was in Josh's singles ward. Josh was 24 at this time, which isn't a huge gap, but it is a little weird when Josh realizes that he knew Susan before their first meeting. Remember the name Mary Cox we talked about briefly a little while ago? This was one of the other girls that Josh liked years earlier. Well, Susan was her younger sister, and at this time, when they met, Josh was 18 and Susan was 12. And later, Josh wrote about this realization in his journal, and he says that when he met Susan years ago, he remembered thinking she was cute, and also at the time thought, quote, too bad she is too young. Yikes. Never great when an 18-year-old college student thinks a preteen girl is cute but too young. Moving on. <laughs> now that Josh had his fancy new place, he liked to throw dinner parties for his friends, which seems really cool and nice, right? But in his journals, there was never-ending complaints, yet again, about how rude and obnoxious his friends were for coming over and eating all his food, even though they literally were invited over to eat his food. In October of 2000, Josh set up one of these dinner parties and he invited Susan. This was the night that Josh and Susan felt their spark. Susan decided to help Josh do the dishes, and later in her own journal, Susan shared that this was the moment she fell in love with him. That night, they had their first kiss, and she said that she knew that Josh was the one. Josh also talked about this in his audio journal, saying that the night was perfect and that he loved Susan because she didn't do the dishes because she had to. She did them because she wanted to, because apparently it's 1940, and that's how you know if someone will make a good wife. Anyway, Josh said that he knew that he wanted to be with her forever after this first meeting. November 11th, 2000 was their first official date, and they were already talking about marriage. Uh, let's talk about Susan for a moment. Susan was just described by her sister as the most generous and kind-hearted person you could ever meet. She was bubbly and hardworking, and when you see pictures of Susan in her early 20s, she always had the biggest smile on her face. Susan was going to cosmetology school at this time, and you could tell from her pictures that she loved what she was doing. Uh, she always had the best late 90s, early 2000s hair, and it, she always looked so cute and had the biggest, prettiest smile um, and she was working at the JCPenney jewelry counter part-time to put herself through school when she met Josh. Susan was really impressed with Josh because he was a little older, he was in college, he had his own apartment, he drove a motorcycle. He seemed very together. Unfortunately for Susan, she had no idea that Josh didn't have it together as much as he seemed. He had racked up a ton of credit card debt, and his horrible spending habits were going to cause a lot of problems for this couple later down the road. One day, Josh went to see Susan at the jewelry counter at JCPenney and asked her to help him pick out a gift for his mom, a ring that he would like to purchase using her employee discount. Turns out, surprise, this ring wasn't a gift for his mom. It was an engagement ring for Susan. I'm assuming a ring that she chose as a gift for her boyfriend's mom was probably not the same ring that she would have chose for her own wedding ring, but that's none of my business. After knowing each other for just a couple of months, Josh popped the question on January 5th, 2001. Susan's family was pretty surprised and not as excited as she hoped they would be, even though her friends felt like it was quick and thought Josh was kind of an oddball. True. They were still pretty supportive. Josh and Susan got married on April 6th, 2001. Now that they'd officially sealed the deal, Josh was up to his old tricks. They opened a credit card in Susan's name and he immediately began spending money left and right. Susan wrote in her journal that she was so excited to get a house together once Josh graduated college and she was looking forward to their future together. Unfortunately, Josh was not working and she was only per working part-time and eventually they were evicted from their apartment. After being married for only nine months, Josh and Susan moved into Steve Powell's apartment. 
and it wasn't like it was some kind of a basement apartment or even their own bedroom. There wasn't enough space for all of them, and they had a makeshift bedroom in the living room. Sheets were hung from the ceiling to create some privacy, definitely not enough privacy for a newlywed couple, and as if that weren't awkward enough in the best case situation, Steve made this experience awful for Susan. Susan always said she felt like she was creeped out by her father-in-law and he was constantly staring at her. He had his video camera trained on her constantly. She also told one of her friends that she caught him trying to watch her undress. Susan was miserable living at Steve's house under his constant watch and so she decided to quit working as a cosmetologist even though it was her passion and she loved it, but she wanted to get a better job so that they could move out of this horrible situation. So she got a job and was working full-time, working really hard, making all of the money. Meanwhile, Josh was bouncing around different jobs and trying, kind of, to finish school. And to add more stress to this situation, Josh didn't want to continue going to church. And uh, living with Steve pushed him over the edge like it did when he was a kid. So he was starting to be Team Steve again and was telling Susan certain things about her religious beliefs that Susan did not appreciate. Which, again, let me say, religious beliefs are really personal and very specific to each person, but when you build a rela relationship where your religious beliefs form that whole foundation of the relationship, it's going to cause issues when one of you decides that you no longer like that religion, and not only that you don't like it, but that you're going to openly disagree with it and make your spouse feel bad for believing what they believe. And it did cause issues for Susan, who was still very much involved in the LDS church at this time. Luckily, they didn't have to live with Steve for much longer, and they were able to move into a new apartment. Josh had lost yet another job, but Susan was making really good money and could afford to keep them afloat. In June of 2003, Josh finally graduated business school, but still couldn't keep a job. He was convinced that he was too good for any job that he was offered, and he just felt like he was better than everyone, even though he had just graduated college. So he continued spending Susan's money that went into his bank account that she didn't have access to, he was basically just pulling the same crap that he did with his old girlfriend, Catherine, and the bottom line was that Josh didn't want to work hard for things, and he probably felt like he didn't have to since Susan was paying for everything anyway. Susan and Josh may have moved out of Steve's house, but Steve was not done harassing Susan. Eventually, he began stalking her and would even wait outside of her job and take videos of her walking in and out. He even went as far as to stand outside of their apartment at night and film Josh and Susan in their bedroom and in their living room. He was extremely open in his own video journals, again with the journaling, and would talk about how he thought that Josh and Susan's relationship was going nowhere, and he thought Josh was actually just using her for her money. He even went as far as to say that he felt that Susan did know that he was filming her, she absolutely did not, and that she liked it. And again, she absolutely would not have liked that he was filming her. At this point, this man is delusional and creating some weird narrative where he and Susan are on the same page. Eventually, Steve decided to tell Susan how he felt, and there's audio of this interaction because Steve had his video camera recording inside a bag in his car when he dropped this bomb on Susan. Josh had decided to try yet another career. He was going on his first ride-along for a trucking company. Of course, he didn't follow through with his job and we never hear of it again, but he was going to be gone for a few days, so Susan was going to go visit her parents, and the ever-helpful Steve offers to give her a ride. On the hour-long drive to Susan's parents' house, he confessed his feelings, all of them, and admitted that he was obsessed with Susan. He went on and on and on while Susan sat shocked in silence, stuck in a car with him, until eventually she shut him down and told him it was not okay for him to talk to her like that, and she didn't understand where this idea was coming from. She felt extremely uncomfortable and clearly didn't feel the same way. But just like his son, he was unwilling to take no for an answer and was furious, he even went as far as telling his youngest daughter, Elena, about this. And instead of saying, like, you know, Dad, don't be a creep, that's your daughter-in-law, for some reason, Elena agreed with Steve. She told him that Susan was being unfair and even comforted him saying that Susan was a tease. Seriously? <laughs> Steve then turns to his handy-dandy notebook and talks all about how confused and heartbroken he is in his journal and then comforts himself with the conclusion that Susan was a player and this is just what players do. Seriously, I, I just can't. I can't. When Susan told Josh what happened with Steve, he was, of course, upset and confronted his dad. But don't worry. Steve explained how it was completely Susan's fault for leading him on. And Josh was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And was no longer mad at Steve because, you know, bros before hoes. It just, it makes my stomach hurt thinking about being in Susan's position. 
Susan had to have just been so confused and felt so trapped and probably a little betrayed by her husband for not standing up for her. Eventually, thankfully, she convinced Josh that they needed to move away from Steve, and so they decided to move to West Valley City in Utah. In the days after Josh and Susan moved, Steve had access to their storage unit in Washington, and he got into the storage unit and took all of Susan's old journals and boxes of hundreds of photos that Susan had taken. Later in his journal, he said, quote, when it comes to Susan, I stop at nothing. Disgusting. He made copies of hundreds of photos and journal pages and then had the audacity to say that he didn't think Susan would mind because she loved him like he loved her. Unbelievable. He even went on to mention how upset and offended he was that she hadn't mentioned him in any of her journals ever. The level of insanity here is just off the charts. I don't understand how this person was so delusional and created this whole story. Okay, moving on. I can't. I can't. I'm going to go on a rant. I'm not going to do it. Luckily, Susan was finally able to distance herself from Steve and was ready to move forward building a happy marriage with Josh. They bought their, they bought their first house together in West Valley, and Susan started making friends quickly at church and at her new job. They were also living closer to Josh's oldest sister, Jennifer, and her husband, and Jennifer and Susan quickly became close. Susan was able to open up to Jennifer about what happened with Steve, and Jennifer was sadly not at all surprised. Susan was working hard at her new job and was able to get a promotion if she became a stockbroker. So she studied hard and passed the test, and her temporary job turned into a great paying full-time job with medical benefits, which was really lucky because in 2004, Susan found out she was pregnant with their first baby. Josh had been fired from yet another job and refused to find something new because he felt he was far too smart to work at an entry-level job. But don't worry, he was on to another career path and wanted to be a real estate agent. So again, the financial burden was on Susan, and Josh stayed home and played on the expensive new computer he bought with Susan's money. He also spent hours on the phone with Steve and his brother John. Susan said he would put the phone on speaker and sometimes no one would even be talking but he just wanted to feel like they were all in the same room together, so they just would have the phone on. Weird. On January 19th, 2005, Susan and Josh's first son, Charlie, was born. When Susan went into labor, Josh had been on his laptop working on who knows what because he was unemployed at this time, from what I understand, but whatever it was was so important that Josh brought his laptop to the hospital and was on it the whole time Susan was in labor. Eventually, Susan's dad, Chuck, finally went over and shut the laptop and told him to get off his ass and go be with his wife. I'm editorializing. It probably wasn't that, that exact sentence, but it was probably along the same lines. Once Charlie was born, nothing changed. Josh was still making no money, and now Susan had a baby to take care of all on her own because even though Josh was there all the time, he didn't help out at all. Their friends described Josh as a very unattached dad. He would hold the baby when he wanted to show him off, but was never willing to help with diaper changes or bath times. He even went as far as to pressure Susan to go back to work quickly so that they could make more money. And when I say they, I mean she. Over the next couple of years, Josh and Susan adapted to being parents. Or Susan adapted and Josh just continued on as what he had been doing. He was becoming more controlling than usual with their money, even though he was buying all sorts of things they didn't need or have money for, such as new stereos, a new video camera, and a bunch of other techie things. Josh also started going through and reading Susan's old journals from high school and would pick fights with her because she had written about high school boyfriends or because she had pictures of prom dates that he wanted her to get rid of. And she didn't want to get rid of these things because they were her journals, they were memories, and they were in the past, so she kind of luckily put her foot down and kept those things. Um, but they also hit a bump in the road when they stopped being intimate. Out of nowhere, it seemed Josh just wouldn't go near Susan. He wouldn't hold her hand or give her any kind of physical contact, which, don't get me wrong, it's not unheard of for couples to go through a time where they're not having sex. That's fine. It happens, especially when you're new parents. But this really concerned Susan and hurt her feelings because it had never been an issue before. Despite all the fighting and controlling behaviors from Josh, Susan really wanted to make their marriage work, especially since they had just had a baby. Susan was doing everything, cooking, cleaning, working, and taking care of the baby while Josh barely contributed. She begged him to help her make things easier. She begged him to make things work, and she followed his strict budget and never spent money on herself or did anything nice for herself. It's just so heartbreaking because she is giving everything and has gotten nothing back in return. In May of 2006, Susan found out that she was pregnant with their second child, another boy, who was born January 2nd of 2007, and his name was Brayden. As excited as Susan was to have another baby, it put the family into even more stress. Susan ended up losing her job, and Josh was still trying to pursue the real estate thing, which was not going well, and eventually they found themselves in $200,000 of debt, yikes, 
and filed for bankruptcy. In Susan's journals from this time, she described feeling miserable, lonely, sad, and unappreciated. She did say that she didn't feel suicidal, but she felt selfish for wanting better. And I really try not to let this be a podcast where I go on a bunch of tangents, but for some reason, this particular case is so hard for me because Susan spent so much time feeling miserable and unloved and felt selfish for that way, and it just seems so backwards to me. And this is a situation I have seen a lot in my life, unfortunately. And if you want better, please know you're not asking for too much by asking for your partner to be a partner. Okay, we're not going to get into this. I'm not going to... This is not a relationship podcast. I'm moving on. Sorry. Luckily... Actually, no, it wasn't luck. It was Susan working her ass off. Susan got a great job working at Wells Fargo at the end of 2007, which meant that the family would be a little better off financially. We all know money doesn't buy happiness, especially when one partner keeps spending all the money on random crap like power tools, DVD players, RC cars. Yes, you heard me, RC cars. Josh was still unemployed and controlling all the finances. They were extremely unhappy, and in another journal entry, Susan said she felt like she was cleaning up after three kids, her two babies, and her man-child husband, paraphrasing, of course. She also said that she had considered leaving and wondered what her life would look like as a single mom, but she concluded that being a single mom would still be harder than trying to stay in her marriage, so she continued trying to fix things and fix Josh and make make the marriage work. On Susan's 27th birthday, she got home from work to a messy house with an even bigger mess in the kitchen where Josh had attempted to bake her a cake. The cake sat on the counter, unfrosted, the baking mess everywhere, while Josh sat at the computer watching old Saturday Night Live clips. He told her that she could frost the cake for them to have after dinner. Oh, how kind of him. So she frosted her own birthday cake, and then cooked her own dinner, and then cleaned up the giant mess in the kitchen. Then Josh presented her with a birthday gift. Uh, A small dry erase board, like the ones with the magnet on the back you stick to a fridge or whatever. It was yellowing around the edges and a stack of church DVDs that he clearly bought from a secondhand store. First of all, you don't need to spend a bunch of money to give a meaningful gift, of course, but you can get an inexpensive gift that is better thought out than random crap you picked up at the DI. Like, did he just close his eyes and pick two things from a random pile, or, like, what was that? Also, he could have spent zero dollars and just given the gift of a clean house and an evening to herself, which would have gone a long way. Again, it's not about the stupid gift. It's about a partner who isn't even trying to be thoughtful or helpful. Like, happy birthday, your gift is that you get to clean up the mess I made for you today while I play on the computer that I don't allow you to lo- to use. And speaking of money, you'll be shocked to learn, they were in debt again because Josh cannot stop buying himself toys. Meanwhile, Susan was on such a strict budget, if she spent too much money on groceries, Jock would, Josh would lock her out of their bank account. He would also get angry if she didn't use coupons or if she bought food at one store that was on sale at another store. It just goes on and on like this forever. Josh was also on one again about religion, which is another thing that they fought about constantly. It's around this point that Susan started to feel like she was breaking, and in a journal entry she wrote, quote, I feel like a prisoner in my own family, fighting to practice my religion and my beliefs in my own home. I can't believe our marriage deteriorated so quickly. I feel so blind and naive and foolish. I cherish my boys, but I realize they'll grow up and move on. In 2008, Susan strongly considered filing for a divorce. Things were escalating in Josh's behavior, and Susan started to worry about her safety and the safety of her kids. He'd started yet another business, this time in web design, and was taking a few clients and working from home. Again, Josh was very smart when he wanted to be, but he didn't want to work hard to be successful, so while this business could have been really good for him, he was still barely working and still spending all of Susan's money. Once during a fight, Susan asked him why he could spend money, and she couldn't, and he told her it was none of her business. Lovely. Eventually, Susan opened up her own secret bank account that she'd have part of her paycheck put into, and she used this money to buy extra groceries for the boys and to pay a loan back to her parents. Josh and Susan also shared one car, and even though Susan was the one with a job outside the house, Josh insisted that he needed the car, so sometimes he would drive her to work, but most of the time she would ride her bike 15 miles to and from work. In a Facebook message to a friend, Susan said, quote, He's mainly emotionally, financially, and verbally abusive. Basically, I'm a single mother with a guy who lives with me and dictates what I can do with my time, takes my paycheck, and spends my money. Red flags all around. A whole bouquet of red flags, you guys. This is not a marriage. It's a prison. Their never-ending fights had become even more extreme with constant yelling and talk of divorce. During one of these fights, Susan slapped Josh across the face, and he told her if she ever did that again, he would hit her back. Really quick, no one should be hitting anybody, man or woman, it's not okay, and if that's the point you're at, you need to seek help because it's not normal and it's not okay. 
By all accounts, Susan was never an angry or aggressive person, but from what I've read, she was probably feeling like a cornered animal and lashed out, which again, such a red flag. Obviously, I'm not a psychologist, but in my uneducated opinion, someone who is bringing you to that point is probably not a great person for you to spend your time around. After this particularly nasty fight that we talked about way back in the beginning of this episode, Susan told her friend that she was scared for her safety. Whenever she would get to a point where their fights were so bad that she wanted to call 911, he would grab the phone away from her and tell her that she was acting crazy and make her feel like she was being irrational for being so upset. Hi, that's called gaslighting. Like we talked about earlier, Susan began creating a paper trail. And when she told Josh that she was thinking about divorce, he basically told her that there would be lawyers involved and he threatened to make it so she wouldn't be able to see her kids. So he's got her cornered at this point. She probably felt like the only thing worse than staying married to Josh would be for Josh to take her kids, which is why she continued to stay and which is why a lot of people stay in these situations. On July 28th, 2009, Susan wrote that note we talked about at the beginning of the episode detailing their struggles. She talked about the extreme marital stress, the fights, the control, and she said if anything happened to her, she did not want her boys to be with Josh. She put the letter in her safety deposit box. After talking to a lawyer, Susan was advised to make a video documenting all of their assets. On July 29th, 2008, she went through their house basically making an inventory of all their stuff, or all of Josh's stuff, because as we know, he bought a lot. There were computers, stereos, power tools, cameras, RC cars. She showed it all. And in this video, Susan records herself explaining what she's doing. And the woman that we see in these videos is so different from the young, bubbly, smiling girl from their wedding videos and the videos from the beginning of their marriage. She sounds so defeated and it's absolutely heartbreaking. In this video, she said, quote, I'm covering all my bases, making sure that if anything happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. I hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. And when she says this, you can hear it in her voice, how much she believes that that will not happen. And as I'm sure you've guessed by now, there are not going to be any happy endings for the Powell family. The following year in March of 2009, Susan gave Josh one final ultimatum. She wanted things to change or she was going to finally leave. Josh did make some tiny moves in the right direction. And for Susan, that was enough to keep her around yet again. From what I found, they still fought about two major things, money and religion. And I'm sure many of you know, when you don't see eye to eye on those two things in a relationship, it can cause never-ending issues. Josh still wouldn't go to church with Susan and was constantly belittling her for her going. And he also didn't want Charlie and Brayden to attend church. There was a time that Susan walked into a room and Josh was on another one of his long speakerphone calls with Steve. Charlie and Brayden were sitting on his lap and he was telling them that the church was bad and that mom was evil. Apparently, Steve was encouraging this and egging Josh on, and it was basically a repeat of what Steve did to his kids through all of Josh's childhood. At this time, Susan shared in her journals that her kids were the only thing that brought her any joy, and because of this, she was hoping to get pregnant again. In my opinion, that seems like a horrible idea, but you hear about that sometimes. People want to have a baby to help a marriage, but again, just my opinion, that very seldom works. Especially in a situation like Susan's, but I understand 100% where she was coming from and how she felt like having another baby would make her happy because her kids were the only thing bringing her any joy at this point. In September of 2009, Josh got into a minor fender bender that apparently wasn't that big of a deal, but Josh was a drama queen and he insisted that he needed regular chiropractic work and an expensive massage chair to help with his non-existent injuries, which put them even further into debt. Josh still had no concern for the amount of money he was spending on useless crap, and in November of 2009, he purchased a rug doctor and a gash torch. Just for fun. No reason. Josh also apparently decided to change up some things in their life insurance policies and lift, list Steve and his brother John as beneficiaries. Just, again, just because. Just for fun. On the morning of Monday, December 7th, 2009, Josh's sister Jennifer received a worried phone call from Brayden and Charlie's daycare teacher, Debbie Caldwell. In the years that Josh and Susan had lived in Utah, Susan had formed a really tight bond with Jennifer since she was the only person who had been inside the craziness of the Powell family. She understood what Susan was dealing with, and Jennifer was listed as a backup emergency contact at the boys' daycare. On that Monday morning, Susan didn't drop the boys off at their usual time, and Debbie immediately found this odd. She tried contacting Susan and Josh multiple times before finally calling Jennifer, which was so smart of Debbie to be so quick in realizing that something was up in this situation. Jennifer immediately went to Josh and Susan's house, and there was no answer when she knocked. She couldn't hear anyone inside, but she did notice that there was fresh snow in the driveway and no tire tracks, which meant that no one could have come in or out of the driveway since at least the night before. Jennifer became worried 
that there could have been some kind of a gas leak inside of the house, and maybe the whole Powell family was unconscious, so she quickly called the police. And when police arrived at the Powell house, Jennifer gave them permission to break a window to get inside. After doing a search of the house, they found that no one was home, and the family's van was gone. There didn't seem to be anything too out of the ordinary, no signs of a struggle, and everything was fine aside from the fact that Susan's purse and keys were still at the house, and there were two large box fans blowing on the living room carpet that appeared to be wet. Hours went by and no one could get a hold of Susan or Josh, and both of their phones were off, and neither of them showed up for work that day. Jennifer tried calling Josh again and again, and finally he picked up, and when he did, he was shocked that the police were at the house, and he said that he had no idea where Susan was. She should be at work. Jennifer told him that she hadn't shown up for work, so clearly that's not where she was, but Josh insisted that that's where she had to be. And in fact, he hadn't even seen Susan since the night before. Don't worry, he'd had a totally reasonable explanation. It was something we've all done a hundred times, especially those of you with young kids. Josh said that he left the house around midnight the night before because he decided to take Charlie and Brayden on a last-second camping trip. At midnight. In the winter. In the middle of a blizzard. Totally normal. Jennifer told Josh that he needed to hurry home so that he could talk to the police, and he said he was on his way from the Pony Express Trail, which is a few hours away from the Powell home in West Valley City. Josh took his time getting home, not a care in the world, zero concern for where his wife could be, and finally when he did get home in the early evening, the police began to question him. When they asked him where Susan was, he kept insisting that she should have been at work, and he had no idea where else she could be. It was very clear from the minute they started interviewing him that he was not upset or worried or concerned for where his wife could be. In fact, he seemed more annoyed than anything that he was being questioned. The officers asked, <laughs> sorry, holding for jet, very loud plane. The officers asked to take a look at the family's van, and Josh agreed on the condition that he could stand right there and watch them while they searched the van and could call off the search at any time, which isn't suspicious at all, right? The officers started searching the van and found that while Josh said that he'd taken the boys on this last-minute camping trip, there was not the kind of equipment you would need to go camping in the middle of winter, like, I don't know, a tent? There were a few blankets and a tarp, a shovel, a handheld circular saw, a rake, extension cords, a gas can, and a gas generator, and a couple of pairs of extra clothes for the boys. But no tent, no food. <sighs> the officers asked Josh why he hadn't been answering his phone all day when clearly people were trying to get in contact with him, and he said that his phone had died and he didn't have a charger. Meanwhile, an officer who was cleaning out the van found a phone charger plugged into the van, so that was obviously a lie. Then Josh was asked if he had tried to contact Susan at all throughout the day, and he said he'd been calling her, but there was no offer, no answer. And then, meanwhile, the officers are searching the van and find Susan's cell phone in the center console. Josh also had an explanation for this. Don't worry. He had just forgotten that he'd borrowed Susan's phone the day before to get some contacts off of it, but must have just left it in the van and forgot about it. If the police weren't feeling suspicious towards Josh before, they were definitely feeling suspicious after searching the van and getting this quick recap of events from him. Josh's story continued to unfold and get more strange over the next few months, and then even more odd things began to come out, but we will get into that in part two of this episode, or I mean of this case. So make sure you subscribe, come back for next week's episode. We will finish it up in part two. Uh, you can also follow along at TGI Crime Day on Instagram. And don't forget, I'm gathering listener stories of your true crime connections, your town's creepy urban legends, your ghost stories, anything that is true crime related. I want to hear about it. Share it with me. Send those to me at TGI Crime Day at gmail.com. And I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.